0: John chapter 9, verses 24 through 41. This is the word of Almighty God. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he's a sinner I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees uh, near him heard these things and said to him are we also blind jesus said to them if you were blind you would have no guilt but now that you say we see your guilt remains pray with me lord god i pray that you will in fact open our spiritual eyes to your glory this day we ask it in christ's holy name amen you can be seated Jesus is glorious. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is our only hope and our only Savior. Jesus changes our very lives. And we hope that other people would see that change, find Jesus as well, and find the same joy that we have. But some folks are more apt to be nasty than to rejoice in the goodness of Jesus. Well, we're picking up our passage for today. And we're still following the account of Jesus changing a man's life. Jesus gave sight to a man who had been born blind. And one might think that this would be a celebrated thing. But because the religious leaders have a selfish agenda, they're skeptical. And folks, things are about to get ugly. Now, like last week, we want to glorify Jesus in this miracle... We also want to learn from the things that we see in this story about how we can best respond to opposition living in a skeptical, doubting world. So let's get back into the passage. No big introduction here. And let's find six points one more time that will help us to survive the skeptics. So, point number one tell the truth. It's not a bad point is it okay we'll, we'll, we'll go with it verses 24 and 25 so for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him give glory to God we know that this man is a sinner he answered whether he's a sinner I do not know one thing I do know that though I was blind now I see so after the leaders questioned the man who had been healed and then they called in his mom and dad to ask them some questions. Now the religious leaders again call the formerly blind man back before them. And their opening statement is, give glory to God. That sounds good, doesn't it? Sounds nice. We might even start thinking, oh, they're about to tell this guy, well, just, just praise God for what Jesus did for you, even though we don't understand it. But you know what? That's not what they're doing. In the book of Joshua, there was a man named Achan who brought the judgment of God upon Israel. You guys remember the story? Stole some silver, wasn't it? Well, eventually Achan's evil was revealed and Joshua calls on Achan to confess what he had done before facing his sentence. In Joshua seven nineteen. here's what Joshua says. He so, said, then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you've done. Do not hide it from me. See, Joshua was telling Achan to glorify God by coming clean. The religious leadership's doing something very similar with the man who had once been blind. They want him to glorify God and to admit that something bad, something wrong, something sinful had happened. They want him to say Jesus was evil. They demand that he agree with them Jesus is a sinner. But the formerly blind man is not at all interested in their accusations, but is willing to tell the truth. He says, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. He's not going to argue that with these guys. He goes on, one thing I do know, I was blind, now I see. And that change is undeniable. Now like last week, much of what we're going to learn today is based on the right things and the wrong things people do in this story. And here the formerly blind man does something that wouldn't have been easy, but it was right. Something we need to do too. He told the truth. In our world, there are going to be people that demand we agree with them about this or that point. There are going to be arguments about morality, arguments about reality. Sometimes the people we talk to are going to be people who have positions of power, people who can make our lives miserable. But if we want to honor the Lord, even when things are tough, we've only got one option. We have to tell the truth. Well, what are some truths we must tell? The Bible's God's Word. That's a truth we need to tell. The Bible reveals to us the Lord and His ways. Mankind is sinful before God and is in need of a Savior. Jesus is that Savior, the only Savior anybody can possibly have. And all who are saved by Jesus have committed ourselves to live for Jesus, repenting of sin, growing in righteousness before the Lord. we got to tell those truths. The temptation, if most of us are honest, the temptation is to shrink back and hide from the truth. We don't want to be in conflict. So, especially when you're in person, Isn't it interesting how often in person we don't tell the truth, at least with clarity. We avoid using words like sin, judgment, hell. We try to to reshape the truth that we tell so it looks a little more tolerable to the lost world. We verbally compromise instead of just speaking the plain truth of the word of God. Now understand, you don't have to be nasty to tell the truth. There's no requirement for you to make fun of other people. There's no reason to be intentionally provocative. You can say that somebody's in sin, and you can do it with a tone of superiority and arrogance and disdain, But you can also say somebody's in sin and you can do it in a tone of sorrow and love and with an offer of hope in Jesus. Don't be nasty. Do tell the truth. Christians, you might be faced with a lot of challenges in this life. Tell the truth. It's the only way you're going to honor the Lord. But let's keep rolling here. Point number two. After tell the truth, avoid foolish arguments. That's also good marital counsel, by the way. Avoid foolish arguments. Verses 26 and 27. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? So the religious leaders here, they don't like... The man's straightforward testimony. Couldn't see. Now I can see. They would already made up their minds that Jesus was bad, that they were opposed to Jesus. And so they demand that the healed man tell them how it happened. They're just certain. He must have left something out. Or maybe they think they can catch him in a lie if they keep asking enough questions. And at this point, it seems like the formerly blind man has had enough. You ever had enough? Happens from time to time. He's not going to let this group continue to bully him. He's already told them his story more than once, and they don't like it. But his story's not going to change. So he makes it clear the story's not changing. And he gets a little cheeky with the men who are questioning him. He knows they're not asking him honest questions out of honest hearts. So he refuses to play along. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on this passage, says this, quote, The healed man, hitherto polite, now discovers that the professed impartiality of his interlocutors is nothing more than show. As a result, he begins to deploy a quite marvelous gift for sardonic repartee. (laughs) Any of you have a gift for sardonic repartee? Yeah. By the way, sardonic repartee means dark humor, right? That, that kind of witty, It eh, might be a little on the sarcastic side. The healed man knows quite well that this group is opposed to Jesus, but he kind of twists their tails just a little bit. Now, I said earlier, we need to tell the truth, and we do not need to be nasty. At the same time, we are not required to pretend to take seriously attacks that are dishonest. We are allowed to point out that something ridiculous is ridiculous. I would suggest if you're being mean-spirited, you're going too far. But a little humor little pointing out that something being said is crazy? A little honest criticism? That's not wrong. When the heel man asked the group if they wanted to become Jesus' disciples, he was pretty much putting an end to the silly questions. Otherwise, the group would have kept trying to pummel him with questions until he either said something wrong or changed the story. Wisely, The man gave a signal here that this is not going to work. Now, I think as a point of simple wisdom, we can learn from that strategy. Avoid foolish arguments. That's the point I told you you can draw from this. There comes a time in a conversation when the best thing you can do is end it. You know what I'm talking about? I saw a guy on Twitter this week that said he had learned how to do this in his marriage. He said he would just calmly look at his wife and say, Sweetie, if I agreed with you, then we'd both be wrong. And we don't want that, do we? And he said that ended the conversation. Maybe you shouldn't take his advice. But there is nothing wrong with looking somebody in the eye and saying to them, Look, it really doesn't look like we're getting anywhere. We disagree. And continuing to argue about it is only going to lead to conflict and hurt feelings. So, how about we step away from this for a moment and maybe we can come back to discuss it at a later time when we can both respond well to one another? Would that be okay? We want to tell the truth, we want to share our faith, we want to defend our beliefs. But there are times, friends, when we need to avoid foolish arguments. Proverbs 26, verse 4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. We need the wisdom of God, the Spirit of God, to help us to respond to foolish objections rightly. Sometimes we need to be more direct. Sometimes you might even need to be a little sharp in your responses. Sometimes we'll do best by being gentler. Now here's what I want to ask you. Which one do you need to grow in? Do you need to grow in being more direct? Or do you need to grow in gentleness? I promise you, you need one of them. Are you given to weak, unclear answers? then you need to ask God to give you a greater boldness so that you can say that an argument being weighed is foolish and avoid the sin of cowardice. Because cowardice is a sin. But are you given to meanness? Perhaps you need God to help you avoid the sin of being needlessly harsh and offensive. You know between you and the Lord, probably which one it is. And if you don't, you've probably got a spouse or you've probably got fellow church members you could say, hey, which one do I need to grow in? And they will not be able to tell you. Just playing along here. Are any of you honestly confused as to which one of those you need more strength in? (laughs) Kelly's quite Sure. I wouldn't have pointed her out, but she pointed herself out. Getting back to the passage here. The formerly blind man, he asked the Pharisees if the reason they keep asking about his story is, if they want, is that they want to become the disciples of Jesus too. How do you think that one's going to go? Point number three, expect hostility. Expect hostility. 28 and 29 And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we're disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. Yeah, the religious leaders did not take the healed man's repartee kindly. They reviled him. They spoke hatefully to him. They put him down the religious leaders drew a very clear line of distinction between themselves and him. You can be his disciple if you want to, but we're in a different category. We're disciples of Moses, not disciples of Jesus. The religious leaders were saying to the man, they, they were following the scriptures. He's following some crazy, evil person. Some nut job, redneck preacher is what they thought of Jesus. The Pharisees then go on to say, Moses heard from God, not Jesus. They assume that there's no way Jesus could be hearing from God because Jesus wasn't agreeing with them on their rules and their ways. You ever feel like that, by the way? You can't be hearing from God because you're not doing it my way. By the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, the Jews had added hundreds of regulations to the law of God. They assume that anybody who would not follow their extra regulations must not be on God's side. Now again, side notes because I can't help it. You need to watch out for the temptation to do what they did there and to assume that people don't love God if they don't do it your way. It is very easy to become passionate about something in the Christian life and assume that That anybody who doesn't do it your way is opposed to God. I will give you a personal illustration. Years ago, when I was in college, I was regularly involved in street evangelism. We'd go out on the street, we'd pass out gospel tracts, we'd get into conversations with people about Jesus. And at that time, I believed I was doing what committed Christians do. In fact, I was so sure that street preaching was what Christians should do that I made sure that the people around me knew that if they weren't going out on the street with us or at least taking time to pray for us at that same time, they weren't really committed to the Lord. At least not as committed as we were. I was a sweetheart. See, my passion for that particular kind of evangelism, which was good in many ways it became my measuring stick for what all good Christians do my preference became in my mind a rule that other people had to measure up to if they were going to be good Christians you want to bet whether you have some rules like that too How many chapters of the Bible does a person have to read every day to be a good Christian? What kind of music must a person listen to in order to be a good Christian? Like, if you don't have the, what's the popular Christian station here in town? Okay. If you don't have that programmed into your car radio, can you possibly be a good Christian? What what particular way does a person have to say true things in order to meet your standard or not upset your pet peeve? Because we got some doctrinal pet peeves in this room, y'all. What social or political issue does a person have to champion? Not just vote for, but actually champion in order for them to meet your standard of good Christianity. Be very careful not to be like the Pharisees and add to the rules of God your preferences. And here's the thing, folks. You will do that without without meaning to. You know This is easy, right? You slip into these things. One Christian author says that acting like the Pharisees here, it's like having dinner at Denny's. No one plans to go there. You just end up there. (laughs) Nobody plans to add rules and legalism and moralism to the word of God. You just end up there. When the healed man challenged the Pharisees and their standards by pointing them toward Jesus the religious people around him got harsh. For you and me, living in a lost world, harshness should never be a surprise. Now, I'm not saying you go through life all tensed up and spoiling for a fight. I do believe that you should expect hostility. Sometimes we're just shocked when people don't agree with us. You ever get shocked when oh my gosh, you write something on on your Facebook or whatever, and someone's like, I don't think so. (gasps) How could you? We get stunned when people don't think like us. But Jesus has told us, hasn't he, that while God is going to draw people to himself, and while God is going to save every last one of the elect, there are going to be people throughout the age who will become increasingly hostile toward the church. Folks hated and killed Jesus. Sometimes they will hate and kill us. Just remember. Remember this. Jesus beat the grave and he's going to keep us for eternity. Expect hostility. Trust the Lord. Speak the truth in love. Fourth point. Point to Jesus. Point to Jesus. Verse 30, and all the way to 34. The man answered, Boy, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. The healed man speaks boldly about Jesus. The Pharisees, they've already admitted they don't know anything about Jesus. They don't know where he comes from. They, they really don't have the right to declare him to be evil. The evidence about Jesus should be leading them to believe in Jesus. The man says, never has anybody heard of someone healing a man born blind. You know, if you look at the Old Testament, that's true. There were all kinds of miracles in the Old Testament. There were some resurrections in the Old Testament. But you don't see the healing of a man born without sight. 2 Kings chapter 6, Elisha asks God to blind a group of soldiers and then asks God to give them their sight back. So there were some blind guys that got their sight, but they weren't born like that. You don't see a precedent for what Jesus just did. So the man argues, if God only answers the prayer of the righteous, then the fact that I can see is evidence that my healer Jesus is righteous. There are a lot of Old Testament passages that could have led him to the view that the prayers of the wicked would not be heard, but the righteous would. As an example, Psalm 66, 18 says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. You could also look to Proverbs fifteen twenty-nine, or Isaiah 1, or F- Isaiah 59, 2 as examples of similar scriptures that would take you down that path. Now, I want to add the caveat, the little warning here. Last week, I said to you, the unexplainable is not absolute proof of godliness the old testament did allow for a person to perform a miracle of predictive prophecy but still be an evil person who would lead you away from the lord the point is that the people of israel are supposed to keep their eyes open for it and follow only god by following his word so don't necessarily assume that a a miracle, something you can't understand, always means that the person claiming to have done it is godly. Well, the religious leaders here should have been open to at least honestly look at Jesus to see if he's being faithful to the word. Because Jesus was being faithful to the word, but the Pharisees were blinded by their own legalism. They could not see that Jesus came to them from heaven. They failed to realize that Jesus was actually fulfilling the promises of God to push back the darkness of sin, to push back the ugliness of the curse that sin brought on the earth. And Jesus did glorious miracles that showed that the kingdom of God had come. Isaiah 42, 6 and 7, part of one of the servant songs reads, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Listen to this to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Isaiah 29, 18, Isaiah 35, 5, show us very similar things. Jesus is exactly what God has promised. The religious leaders didn't get it. And we will be faced with skeptics who refuse to believe the evidence that's right in front of their faces. What do we do? You know what we do? We keep pointing to Jesus. You tell the truth. You trust that God, in God's timing, by God's power, for God's glory, will open the eyes of the people he will save. You keep pointing to Jesus. Don't let him sidetrack you. Don't let them take you down the path of goofball arguments. Point to Jesus. And like I said, was it last week? Week before? I don't remember which now because I don't remember what I say. I trust that you do. Uh, You know what? People start raising questions. Sometimes the best response is, that's a fascinating discussion, but what does it have to do with you and Jesus? The religious leaders, are, they're not at all ready to see the truth. They keep insulting the healed man. They suggest that he caused his own blindness by being a sinner from birth. You know whose side they were on with the question at the beginning. Who caused this man to be born blind? Him or his parents? The leader's like, it's obviously you. They put him out of the synagogue. They separate him from being welcome in his very own community. That would have hurt. Expect Hostility. But know that God will keep you. The leaders also show they're not open to being taught by logic. They're not open to being taught by scripture. And that puts them in a very dangerous spiritual place. Can I say to you, if you're not opened, if you're not open to being taught by the word, if you're not open to the evidence for God that's all around us, You are in a very dangerous place. So how do we avoid being in a dangerous spiritual place? Point number five, believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Verse 35 to 38. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You've seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. This, friends, is beautiful. The sweet Savior goes and finds the man who's been rejected by his family and friends. Psalm 27.10 says, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Jesus doesn't leave the healed man to fend for himself. He seeks him out and he asks him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The title, Son of Man? probably is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, the victorious one sent by God to fix what's wrong all over the earth. Daniel 7, 13 and 14 reads... Jesus is not asking the healed man if he believes that God will send a son of man someday. Jesus is asking this man, this wonderfully healed but sadly rejected man, if he's ready to rest his very soul in the care of the one God promised to send. The man asks Jesus an important question. Who is the son of man? He needs to know in whom to believe. He needs to know Who will shelter his soul? And our Savior looks into the man's newly healed eyes and says, you have seen him. Don't you love that? You've seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. Jesus, with no hesitation and no obfuscation, tells the healed man, he, Jesus, The son of man, the promised one, the king over all kings is the one to believe in. The healed man responds perfectly. He believes and he worships. He doesn't perform some sort of ritualistic action to try to gain Jesus' favor. Doesn't make an offering or sacrifice. He just entrusts himself to Jesus. Believing. He believes Jesus is who he claims to be. He believes that Jesus is going to do what Jesus came to do. When he truly sees who Jesus is, he worships, he bows, he gives reverence and homage to Jesus, glorifying him as is fitting. It's a lovely scene. The formerly blind man might have felt horribly alone after being rejected by family and friends. But Jesus came to him. Jesus didn't leave alone. Jesus sought him out. He revealed his glory to the man and invited the man to believe. And the man believed. In that moment, something much better than physical healing of blindness took place. The man was healed spiritually. The man's soul was saved. And today, right here, I'm telling you, Jesus is Son of God and Son of Man. Jesus is the only one who can make you right with God. You must have Jesus' grace or you face the judgment of God. And I urge you, believe. Believe. Today, you are in one of two camps. You can today admit your need, come to Jesus, and be saved, or you can ignore your need, convince yourself that you're good enough on your own, and remain under the wrath of God. Don't try to stand before God on your own. Point number six, the last one, admit your need. Admit your need. 39 to 41, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and, those, and that those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. The chapter comes to a close here and we see Jesus using the concept of of seeing and being blind to show us the two groups of people in the world. The Savior is gonna be the judge. He brings both the grace of God and the judgment of God on the world. And Jesus says he came so that those who do not see may see. That was true in the physical sense right here, right? He healed the blind man. But Jesus is saying a lot more Before he met Jesus, the blind man was in need of salvation. He needed to know the Son of Man. Jesus came to open this man's eyes and to grant him saving faith. Alternatively, there are those who walk around declaring, Oh, I see just fine. That's an obvious reference here to the religious leadership. Even they recognize it. They thought they could see. They thought they knew everything there was to know about God and spirituality and everything else. They thought they, by their efforts, by their obedience, would work their way into the favor of God. And they were so very wrong. They were spiritually blind. The best thing that the religious leadership could have done at that moment was to admit their need. They needed to realize they were blind. Because had they understood they were blind, they would have asked Jesus for mercy. But because they believed they could see, because they believed they were smarter than the Bible, they were smarter than those proclaiming Christ, they were smart enough to know, because they believed they had it together, they proved they were blind, they proved they were facing the wrath of Almighty God. How can Jesus say if you were blind, you would have no guilt? Should we assume that Jesus is saying that those who cannot see are just more righteous than others? Why are you laughing at that? His point is, if they would admit they were blind, they'd come to him for mercy. If they'd come to him for mercy, they'd have their guilt removed. So no, Jesus is not saying blind people are better than you. But because they stick to their own self-righteousness, because the leaders stick to their self-righteousness and rely on their own understanding, they are guilty. Until that situation changes, until they admit their need, they are spiritually dead. Their guilt remains. Well, again... What about you? You ever come to the place where you saw your spiritual inability? You ever realize that you're not smarter than the Bible? You ever realize that you can do nothing, absolutely nothing, to set yourself right with God? Have you realized that your best wisdom is just not enough? Have you seen that you cannot shrug off the word of God? Has God opened your eyes to your need for a savior? I pray that everyone who hears my voice today will see their need, believe in Jesus, and be saved. God's grace is for all who will believe. And for you who have come to Jesus for salvation, thank God. Living in a hard world, you and I need to tell the truth, Avoid foolish arguments, expect hostility, and point people to Jesus. We want to call on other people to admit their need for the Savior and to believe in Jesus. And most of all, as we watch this scene come to a close, we want to love the sweet Savior who, just like he did in the story with the blind man, he came to us, he gave us spiritual sight, and he remains with us even when the world around us forsakes us pray Lord God thank you again for Jesus thank you for a sweet savior who gives us life who gives us hope but also who helps us to see how we need how we can still be a part of pointing other people to him God, I pray you help us to learn from your word today, whatever we needed to grasp. Let us have courage, kindness, humility, passion for the gospel. Help us see people gain spiritual sight. And Lord, for those who hear this message who who don't know you, would you be so sweet and so merciful as to convince them today that they are to believe? Don't let us make excuses, God. Don't let us make excuses about your sovereignty. We, We love your sovereignty. We love that you are in control. The bottom line is, is when people stand before you, it's incumbent upon them to have believed. Help us to know that salvation is not found in any other place than by believing in Jesus. And then, once we understand it, we'll give you the praise for having done the sovereign work. Work in us now, I pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.